again, virtue is itself good. It's an mm-hmm. excellence. Yeah. Um, it's intrinsically good. And so it's not because of any external thing to it. It matters in and of itself. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. We hope you had a wonderful holiday season and we're really glad to be back with you with brand new episodes for the spring of 2023. Today in our episode, we're delighted to have with us Dr. Christian Miller. Dr. Benjamin Quinn will talk with Dr. Miller about the important topic of honesty. It's a fascinating conversation. We hope you'll enjoy it. After that, we'll have another edition of our listener favorite segment called On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, and we look at it from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about a conference that you're not going to want to miss. Last year, the Center for Faith and Culture hosted a conference called Exploring Personhood. Now, I've attended personally a lot of our conferences that we've hosted over the years that I've worked here at the Center for Faith and Culture. Exploring Personhood was among my favorites. And on February 2nd and 3rd, Exploring Personhood is back. And this time, the conference will talk about the importance of human formation. So the questions we'll discuss at this conference are things like, how are humans formed? What factors shape our identities as humans? What practices lend themselves to human and spiritual formation? Academic disciplines answer these questions in increasingly different ways, but how we understand this question of human formation really does affect a lot of things. Well, we're going to advance this conversation at Exploring Personhood Human Formation on February 2nd and 3rd, and we're going to invite insights from Christian theology, the sciences, humanities, and pastoral ministry, We've got a really fantastic, eclectic lineup of speakers with people like Drew Johnson, Andy Davis, Jennifer Hurt, Kelly Kopick, Todd Hall, Kristen Kellen, and Christian Miller, who's the featured guest on today's episode. So you're not going to want to miss this conference. Head to our website, cfc.scbts.edu, to register to join, or you can click the link in our show notes. We'll have that there. Tickets start for only $10. So we hope you'll be with us February 2nd and 3rd for Exploring Personhood, Human Formation. What is honesty? Of all the things we could ask about today, what is honesty? And why is it important to your life? Today, we are delighted to have Dr. Christian Miller to join us on the podcast. Dr. Miller is the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University. And in fact, uh, if you're not aware, here at Southeastern Seminary and the College at Southeastern, we sit on the campus that was the original campus of Wake Forest College at that time, now university. So Dr. Miller got to tour our campus for the first time. He is currently the director of what's also called The Honesty Project. He's the author of a a handful of books. I'll just mention two of them. One, a more popular trade-level volume called The Character Gap, How Good Are We? And then also his book, Honesty, The Philosophy and Psychology of a Neglected Virtue. 
His writings have appeared all over the place. You could have seen him in Forbes, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Christianity Today, and a whole lot more. Dr. Miller, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Can we start by just, just kind of tell us what's the elevator speech version of who you are, where you're from, what's your background in the church, how'd you get to where you are in academia? What's that story? Sure, sure. Uh, I'll try and keep it as short as I can. Uh, I was born in Maryland on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay, but I grew up in Florida. I have to say I didn't kind of had a nominal Christian upbringing. Um, around high school, I encountered the works of C.S. Lewis, and that was a really pivotal moment in my life. Took Christianity much more seriously. At the time, also went to a local college, Palm Beach Atlantic College, where I encountered a professor named Dr. Bible. That's, that's literally true. I'm his, I had Dr. Bible teaching me philosophy uh, <laughs> early on, and that kind of got me hooked on in the world of philosophy. Uh, so, so high school was really important both spiritually and also vocationally and, and professionally. Went off to college, went to Princeton University, majored in philosophy, said, I don't want to stop. I, I love this so much. Let's just keep going. How do you keep going in philosophy? You go to graduate school, got a PhD in philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, and then from there, said, I love this so much. I don't want to stop. Let's keep going. And I went out of the job market in philosophy and I providentially was able to get a job at Wake Forest University in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I've been for the last 18 years. Uh, I mainly work in the area of ethics, although I'm also interested in philosophy of religion. And within ethics, early on, my focus was on objective morality. Where does morality come from? Is it objective? Is it relative? Then I switched uh, to the, what's been the, the big focus for the last 10, 15 years, the topic of character and virtue. Hmm. Um, how good are we? How can we become better? What is it to be a good person in the first place? Uh, and then that's uh, led me to this current topic of honesty, which is one part of our character. And you've been working in this honesty project for how long? The Honesty Project is in its fifth year of funding from the John Templeton Foundation. And I, before the project began, I was already intrigued by the topic. So I would say seven years of research on it, uh, five years officially directing this project. We've been uh, supporting scholars all over the world in the amount of about $4.4 million of funding, uh, funding 16 projects around the world, doing our own research at Wake Forest, having conferences, uh, <coughs> summer seminar, running studies, uh, writing books and articles, doing lots of stuff around honesty. So I, I wanted to hear exactly how long, because some might assume this is a reactive project in light of how tumultuous politics have been or social media or whatever. But in reality, you've been doing this for, for several years now. But at the same time, what could be more important than a really good, dare I say, honest conversation about things like honesty, right? I, I think it's, it's a very valuable project to lead. Uh, and what really got me hooked on it was not so much what was happening in, in current events. It was noticing that people weren't paying enough attention to it in my world, in the mm -hmm. world of academia. Uh, two articles in philosophy written on the virtue of honesty in 50 years. So that's, wow. what, that's what really struck me. I said, look, this is a sadly neglected virtue. People need to pay more attention to it in the world of academic research. And uh, not ju just because some random topic. It's an extremely important topic. We did some research as part of the Honesty Project looking at what people like the most in others, what people respect the most in others, and what people want to know the most about other people. And we gave them 60 different choices to choose from, personality traits, character traits, other attributes. And in all three respects, honesty was number one. 
Wow. When it comes to what do you like the most, what do you respect the most, and what do you want to know the most about someone else? Wow. So people of all varieties, academic or not, care about honesty. So we'll jump in and talk more about honesty. But before that, do you still love the works of C.S. Lewis? Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I, uh, I can't let it go. I mean, and, and I want to. I mean, it, <laughs> he was – so it was early on. It was the apologetic works. And then that spread – I think it's, it's a pretty common experience – spread to like the, the science fiction trilogy, the yeah. Narnia books, his, um, his just str- straight academic research. And so I basically devoured all of it. And then from there, you, you kind of branch out more to his, yeah. uh, you know, Charles Williams, mm-hmm. Tolkien. You go earlier to McDonald. You come later to people today who are like Peter Kraft who are influenced by him. Yeah. So it's a whole world that I, that I was uh, kind of willingly and gladly immersed in. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, right now I read the Narnia books to my kids. So Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. Still with me today. So, Dr. Miller, what is honesty? So I wrote an entire book on it, so I don't know how to <laughs> I'll give you the really <laughs> short version, but there's so much it's such a rich concept to unpack. I want to be clear up front that I'm not focused specifically on a particular honest action. I'm thinking about the honest person. What does the honest person look like? And I'd say a person of virtue, a virtuously honest person. And I think there are a couple of things we can say. First, they're honest across a variety of situations. So you don't get to count as honest just by being honest in the courtroom. You've got to be at, at the party, uh, at, at home, at work, and so forth. You've got to be stable over time in your honesty. You can't just be honest one day and then not the next. It's got to be a consistent matter over time, weeks, months down the road. It's um, something that pertains to lots of our moral lives. So it covers lots of moral territory. It covers everything from lying, cheating, stealing, Promise keeping, misleading, hypocrisy, BSing, if I'm allowed to say that here, um, and, other, <laughs> and other parts of, of morality. Um, but then d- diving a little bit deeper into it, we have to think it's a virtue. So it's a good way of being. And if it's a virtue, it has to govern our thinking lives, our feeling and emotional lives, as well as our outward behavior. So you expect the honest person to have appropriate thoughts like, I should keep this promise, or I shouldn't steal this, this item from the grocery store, uh, have appropriate motives and feelings. So care about honesty, care about telling the truth, um, value the importance of trust and promising, and then have those thoughts and feelings outwardly manifest in behavior. So you can... Rely upon the honest person to not cheat you, to not lie to you, not steal from you. But the outward behavior isn't enough. The heart matters too, is what my point is here. And what is lies behind the behavior is as important, if not more important, than the outward behavior of truth-telling, keeping promises, and not cheating. Last thing I'll add is, I mean, if we want to boil it down to one key idea, what is at the heart of honesty? Hmm. Um, at his heart, an honest person, in my view, this is controversial, not everyone would agree, but in my view, at his heart, an honest person cares about not intentionally distorting the facts. Hmm. Um, In other words, an honest person represents the world as they see it accurately to others and to themselves. So they don't misrepresent reality to themselves. That would be self-deception. 
and they don't misrepresent reality as they see it to others, say by lying or cheating or so forth. So they, they convey an accurate picture of how they see the world to themselves and others. So I'm cur- really curious about how, how you understand honesty in relation to, we hear so much now culturally, especially with a younger generation, about authenticity. So is for a younger person, so I've got younger kids too, I've got a daughter in high school and then the others are middle school down to elementary, and constantly they are bombarded and sometimes, you know, even repeating the language, well, I have to be authentic. Well, is authentic always honest? And how do you think about that? So even things like, um, I mean, is wearing a toupee, is that honest? Is putting on makeup, is that honest? Is, or is not doing these things authentic and honest? Or how do we deal with the interface of all that? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky question. Um, and I'm, we might want to go case by case and think about, um, in this case, in this case, in this case, what do, will we say that's honest or not? So if by authentic we mean I'm conveying to you my true self, um, I'm not putting up a mask or faking who I really am. This is me. Then that goes hand in hand with honesty. Um, you're presenting to another person how you see the world or how you are in a genuine and reliable manner. So then what would follow for something like a toupee? Well, um, I would say that in a, in a very trivial sense, that is being dishonest. Unless you're flagging that or notice, noting that to other people, that they're aware of it. Uh, because you are presenting yourself in a certain way that you're not. Hmm. Now, am I going to lose any sleep over that? Or should anyone lose any sleep over that? No. <laughs> I mean, and is this being overly judgmental? I don't want to be at all. Um, but it is a kind of distortion of reality that if it was flagged and, and everyone knew it, that's one thing. But if it's presented in a way as to try and make people think something, that's not in fact the case. Mm-hmm. Namely, that I you know, have a full head of hair or something. Um, that is, in a very minimal, weak, trivial sense, dishonest. Yeah. Um, so, again, I, I, I mean, I'm getting a little nervous even talking about that way <laughs> because I'm, I can imagine listeners getting, you know, what, what is this guy? So, Dr. Miller's <laughs> email address is and his <laughs> right. phone number. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are other situations where it might might be more at stake. So, you know, on social media where you know, if you're distorting messaging in all kinds of ways to make yourself appear better than you are, um, you maybe distort the number of followers you have, you distort your appearance in more mm-hmm. significant ways, uh, you distort, distort your accomplishments, your record, your CV, your, your, your um, transcript, whatnot. Then... Um, that's dishonest clearly, and it's not authentic because it's not presenting who you really are to other people. Hmm. And so I do think authenticity and honesty go hand in hand. Yeah. Yes. Um, when it comes to – you talked about this being virtue, so honesty being a virtue, and you told me earlier that part of your interest, uh, original interest in honesty, what is, is one of these kind of forgotten virtues. It's a classical virtue. It's just not one that we've paid so much attention to even though it ranks high on the desirable scale for everybody involved. Even in the classical sense, um, virtue from a classical perspective always has an end. And you mentioned virtue is a good way of being. Well, what does that tell us? What is that end? Good for whom? And what is the end of these kind of virtues and even the end of honesty? Yeah, so two parts to the answer. First is 
there's interesting questions about to what extent it is a classical virtue. Hmm. Uh, so it's not in Aristotle's mm-hmm. Nicomachean Ethics, for mm-hmm. example. Um, so Aristotle, for the listeners who are not versed in Aristotle, he was the kind of the where he's considered the hero of contemporary thinking about virtue and character. The virtue ethical movement go, goes back to him. And when you look in his Nicomachean Ethics and his discussion of different virtues, it honesty isn't there. Um, throughout history, the history in Western philosophy, honesty surprisingly gets omitted in various places. I still think, though, that's clearly virtue, and and we need to take it very seriously. Do you think it's assumed in in, in Aristotle, even in things like his his logic work? Uh, I, I'm not an, enough of an Aristotle scholar to weigh in. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> is the answer. Um, I'll be honest with you. Uh, so now, to what end? I think there are different ways to answer that, um, and depends on the context and who I'm talking to and what kind of conversation we're having. Uh, I think that the virtues are intrinsically good, so it's not necessarily towards some other end. They're just good in and of themselves. So it's a good thing to be an honest person, full stop. Uh, Now, from an Aristotelian perspective, it's often said, well, they're also contributing towards your own flourishing. Hmm. So any virtue is going to make you flourish more as a person and to really live a flourishing life, a life of happiness understood in the sense of flourishing, you need to have all the virtues. I'm not so sure about that. Um, And in particular, I worry that that makes it pretty egoistic. It's all about me and benefiting myself. Um, So a common objection raised this way of thinking is that it's so self-centered. And I get worried about that too. Um, It could be Though, if we're having a different kind of conversation, we're having a conversation with a, in a religious context or a Christian context specifically, that this might um, sound better. Uh, why do I say that? Well, because maybe God's designed human beings to be a certain way and has a certain kind of vision for what it is to live a good life for human beings. And in that sense, um, God's plan for, human, for humanity involves the virtues. Uh, and one of those virtues is honesty. Um, and so honesty contributes to living up to the plan that God has in store for all human beings. Um, in that kind of context, which depends on who I'm talking to, I wouldn't do that in a, in a secular context. But in that kind of context, I have no problem saying that, um, that honesty is a virtue that's intrinsically good and also contributing towards fulfilling the plan that God has in mind for human beings. Yeah. So talking to your, let's imagine you're talking to your kids and um, you, you know that they're being bombarded with a whole host of, whether through television or other forms of media or uh, their friends, school environment, whatever the case is, um, maybe they're being taught to spin the truth more than they're taught to represent the truth. And you're just wanting to raise your kids. You, you told us earlier you have three kids. Was it 10, 8, 6, I think? Um, in, in their formation and in their upbringing, how are you instilling this kind of uh, virtue into them? Well, probably badly. Um, that's <laughs> I would say. I mean, if I'm being honest again, I'm probably doing a, quite a bad job. Um, yeah, it, and it does matter who we're talking to. I might give a different answer if I was talking about my undergraduate students or if I was talking yeah. about uh, writing for a popular audience, giving advice about how to cultivate a virtue. But when we're talking about kids, age matters too. What can they, can they handle? What can they um, cognitively 
understands, I think I would adopt a couple different strategies. Um, first and foremost, it's got to start with me mm. and my wife uh, mm. in terms of role modeling what we're talking about. Uh, I can give lectures and speeches all I want to my kids, not that, it, that they would ever listen to that, but, um, <laughs> but if they see me not living it out, yeah. it undercuts the very message. Yeah. Um, so I think it has to, I have to look at myself first and say, to what extent am I living an honest life, a life of integrity and authenticity, if you want to use those langu- that language too, in front of them on a daily basis. That's um, powerful to avoid hypocrisy, but it's also can be, um, if we know about role models in general, it can be emotionally inspiring. Now, I don't think I emotionally inspire my kids very much, but um, as a general matter, we know that uh, if there is an example of moral excellence in someone's life, even kids can see that and be emotionally moved and it resonates with them to be more like that, to become more mm-hmm. like that. They, they see something really attractive about that and they want to be, they want to gravitate towards that, be more like that. Um, so all by way of saying, I think the, f- the first place is us, not them. Yeah. Um, secondly, I think it's worthwhile to have explicit conversations. Um, in our society in general, the language of virtue and character is not as common as it once was. Uh, it's almost considered outdated in some quarters. And it doesn't hurt to just talk about, you know, what is honesty? And this, I think, applies also to other virtues. Maybe they're not as uh, – as honesty is pretty wide, has wide cachet, I guess. But, you know, something like gratitude. And what, what are these – what does that even mean? Yeah. What yeah. does it even look like? So just, you know, uh, good explicit conversation. And then a third thing I'll, I'll say is, um, well, you could go with the punishment route next. Yeah. Um, and I think they're – there has to be – that's a delicate one to tackle, um, but you can't just let it slide when, you know, if, if, if a child steals something or cheats on a test or something like that. You can't just say, uh, no big deal. Um, but punishment by itself doesn't always translate into virtue. Mm. Even if it reduces bad behavior, it may not do so for the right reasons yeah. and the right motives. So the fourth thing is uh, – Having some kind of reminders in our lives, me reminding them of what the values that I hope that they care about are. Uh, and that can be done in different ways. Uh, maybe it doesn't even have to be done verbally. If you know, I demonstrate it in my life, they, that serves as a kind of a moral reminder as well. Um, but uh, providing Subtle and not so subtle reminders that this is what we care about as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Maybe we, we pray about it over the dinner table. Uh, maybe I, you know, really commend them for doing so, speaking to uh, their brother or sister in an honest way. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, that this is what we care about as a family. So yeah. the four things were um, role modeling, explicit discussion, punishment, and uh, having some kind of moral reminders in our lives. So I'm, I'm particularly keen on the, the why part behind this. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. this is true for adults, but also true for, for kids. So let me just stick with this vein of thought for a minute. Uh, just yesterday, in fact, a lady in my church, uh, we were just talking after the service, and she mentioned that her fifth grader, who's a good kid, they're, they're a very um, consistent family in our church, but she just kind of comes over and is kind of whispering, whispering to me, saying, I'm a little concerned 
I caught him cheating this week. He goes to a private Christian school, and he cheated on a Bible verse that he's supposed to write the Bible verse out, and he cheated. He got caught. We got, um, the letter was sent home to the parent, and she was really uh, not only flustered, but just not sure what to do. How, do I punish? Do I, do I read the Bible? And she, and her, I think her default was, I think we're going to read the Bible more together, which I'm certainly in favor of. But I can imagine the kid in, in the moment of correction in that conversation saying, but why is it so important? How do you answer that question? This could be adults. This, and especially with adults, I feel like they don't answer the question enough. But why is honesty so important? Yeah, and so I, I'm more comfortable answering the general question <laughs> than I am saying what to do in this particular case. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm very much, when it comes to ma- matters of ethics and morality, a particularist in a sense of we broad Time and place matters. Specifics <laughs> yeah. matter. On Specific those matters, and we yeah. need to know the details of, of what's going on in this in this household and so forth. Um, as a general matter, though, I can say a few things. Now, when I say these things, some of them probably will sound more convincing than others, and some of them might sound, not sound convincing at all. Um, so the hope is that there is one uh, one thing that maybe will will resonate with the audience, and it may be different from person to person, uh, but. Uh, the first thing I, I say is, why does this matter? Well, again, virtue is itself good. It's an mm-hmm. excellence. Yeah. Um, it's intrinsically good. And so it's not because of any external thing to it. It matters in and of itself. Now, you you have to have a certain mindset to be on board with that, though. You have to right. already be convinced that virtue is important to, to see that and have that move you. Uh, so second reason why it matters, it's good for society. Uh, if in our society, we have honesty, uh, then our society is going to be better off. If, on the, in contrast, we have rampant dishonesty, we're going to have all kinds of other problems. Look at the crypto scenario right now. Yeah, yeah. Millions of people damaged because of one or a small handful of people's dishonesty. Um, look at political scandals. Um, look at other – Enron and other uh, economic examples like that. So it's good for – in and of itself, it's also good for society for there to be honesty. Um, from a religious perspective, I think it's clear that honesty is important. God cares about it. God is the truth after all, and God values truth and honesty. Um, so there are all kinds of religious reasons, Christian-specific reasons, um, which we could explore. There's a last reason, though, that sometimes is the most powerful, which is that it is good for us. And it is beneficial for to us, to be people of honesty. Now, this might sound like it's odd for me to say this and contradict something I said about 10 minutes ago, but let me try and unpack it. Uh, There's empirical research on virtues in general, linking them to all kinds of good outcomes. So good outcomes like um, reduced depression, um, longer lifespan, better health, better academic achievements, better uh, subjective well-being, these kind of things. This is correlational research, so we can't get too excited about it because it's just correlating two things. It may not be the causation is still to be unraveled. Um, But it's promising in that it suggests that perhaps if we live a virtuous life, and in particular an honest life, in the long run we will benefit ourselves Mm. as well. Now, I don't start with that reason, right. and I don't only focus on that reason because it's egoistic. It's about benefiting us. Mm-hmm. And so if the only reason we are caring about honesty is that we are going to get some goodies as a result for ourselves, yeah. 
then that will be an impediment to ultimately becoming an honest person and a virtuous person. Because mm-hmm. we have to, if we're really going to be a good person, an honest person, virtuous person in general, we have to get out of a self mindset exclusively and, and be willing to care about others and love others and value things independent of whether they benefit us. Yeah. But as an initial starting point and as a, something that could intrigue someone and get them motivated to go down this path, I'm not going to rule it out. Yeah. It can benefit us too. It's a little bit like the uh, you're on the airplane. If the ventilation masks are deployed from the ceiling, put yours on first so that you can help your neighbor. Right, right, which I'm always right. conflicted about. I've told my wife a hundred times, I'm going to put yours on first and then I'll put mine on. But if I'm compromised because I don't have mine on, well, I'll put it on and then put yours on. But the point being, you can't, you can't un- completely remove yourself from the equation. The same way that love your neighbor as yourself. Self is still part of the equation. Uh, so I, I think that's a fair point. I don't think it undermines your, your previous point at all. You, you can't remove yourself from the equation. Right. You just don't have to make yourself the first end of it all. Right. That's right. That's right. At first and only. Yeah. So um, with all that you're doing with the Honesty Project, what is success for that project? If it, when you started out with this and even the way in which you measure yourself, what kind of impact do you hope to have with all that you're doing? You said multiple countries, $4.4 million of work and research going into this. What are the kind of outcomes that you're looking for? What, what moves the needle? Uh, I guess it's twofold, uh, one direct or immediate and the other indirect and less immediate. Uh, the most immediate and direct is a um, kind of groundswell of academic research in this area. Yeah. Uh, so as I said, in philosophy, only two articles in the last 50 years. I hope uh, because of the research we're funding in philosophy that when people 10 years from now are thinking about honesty, they discover dozens and dozens of articles and multiple books and lots of resources that have been produced, you know, through uh, some kind of contribution from the Honesty Project in philosophy. Uh, Same thing, so our project has two sides, philosophy side and empirical research side. Um, We're funding psychologists and other empirical researchers to do new studies. And so I hope 10 years from now, that people can look back and say, wow, there was just a proliferation of empirical research having to do with honesty that traces back to the Honesty Project. And now we know so much more empirically than we did before. So maybe 100 new published papers and maybe five books and a couple edited volumes. Mm -hmm. Uh, That could really move the needle in the academic world when it comes to research. Now, um, if it just stayed in the realm of the academic world, though, I would not be happy. Um, yeah. So the indirect and kind of longer term impact that I hope it has is that I hope it eventually the, the contributions that are made will filter down to a more popular level. Yeah. Um, that's what I've been trying to do in my earlier research on character. I did a lot of philosophical writing on character, and then I uh, decided to try and transmit that or communicate that to a larger audience with the Character Gap book. Yeah. Um, in uh, next year or two, I hope to do the same thing with honesty. I've written an academic book on honesty. Now I hope to take what I argued and write a more popular book. Mm. And I hope uh, also through writing for the New York Times and other shorter form writing, yeah. uh, kind of communicate some of these results to a larger audience. And other members of the team and other people we funded will do the same thing. Yeah, Because I, I don't want it to just gather dust in the you know, proverbial, proverbial library of academia that would be a, a real shame. Yeah. Um, I think we, 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 many academics feel this desire to have our work matter more than, For the masses. Yeah, yeah than, than that. So yeah, that's, that's what I, ultimately I hope 
will happen. So I've got to turn this into a personal personal direction. So I'm just curious, writing so much on honesty, thinking about it, leading a project, I'm just curious, Dr. Miller, what do you struggle with the most? What are you most tempted to be dishonest about yourself? Uh, well, I've never gotten that question before. Um, I would say one, I don't know if it's the most, but one area would be um, to make it seem like I've got everything figured out and don't have, you know, struggles and challenges in my life, um, especially if it's a more cursory or quick conversation. Um, you know, how are you doing? Fine. Mm. How are things these days? Good. Mm. We all do this. Uh, we don't have time to stop and have a conversation. Or if we, even if we did have time, we may not want to go there with the conversation partner we're having. Uh, the conversation we're having. Um, so it's easy, I think, for me to fall into just glossing over things and giving a quick, perfunctory answer. Things are fine. Things are good. Uh, when sometimes they're not. Yeah. Uh, when, say, I'm overwhelmed with work or um, the kids are uh, – Especially, you know, time-consuming, or you know, in, yeah. in, in, in that, uh, or we have some health challenges with my family, um, and it's in some cases, it's I think perfectly appropriate to not divulge too much. Um, they don't, you know, it's not the right time, or it's not a person to whom I think it's owed. Yeah, uh, but other times it could be a close friend, and I just don't uh, want to be that open or vulnerable or disclose that much about what's going on for no good reason. Yeah. Um, simply just out of maybe uh, uh, wanting to maintain a certain kind of image as, oh, my, you know, this guy's got it all together or this, everything is going fine or, and then not wanting to be uh, authentic and open and completely transparent yeah. with people um, who I should be. So here we are. We're in the South. Of course, yeah. this is not representative of the whole of the country, but in the South, there's there's so much commonly known as just kind of Southernism, mm -hmm. right? And so much just sort of bless your heart type of kindness that is, uh, it, it may have the veneer of uh, kindness, but actually underneath, it's very insincere and dishonest mm -hmm. in many ways. I, I mm -hmm. think about, is it the old, is it the Jim Carrey movie, The Liar Liar? where it's everything is absolutely true, and you're like, man, would you just spend some things a little bit? Because it's <laughs> awkward otherwise. How, how do we, is that even part of what you're hoping to see change, where it doesn't mean that we're less kind, but we're more sincere and honest in our in our social interactions? Yeah, so to, to an extent. Um, now, this raises questions of white lies. It raises question of mm. what about kind of passing social interactions or fleeting social interactions, um, so what I would like to – when speaking to the question directly, um, in the right kind of context, because it's, for me, again, it's situational and it's particular. Um, in the right kind of context, yes, I wish there was more sincerity, more vulnerability, more openness, more um, disclosure. Uh, now, when is the right kind of context and when is it not? Yeah. Um, I do think – and this is controversial um, – that 
there's just not enough time during the day to have those kind of conversations. And for many people who I interact with, it would be inappropriate to have those conversations. Mm. And just saying good or, yeah, things are fine is not a big deal. Now, you could ask the question, is that being dishonest of me or of us? Because we all do it. I guarantee you, you're walking across campus. A student says, how's it going today? You say, great. Um, and it may not be. Uh, is that dishonest? Well, it, here I think it depends upon what the, the expectations are. Um, if the expectations are that we're having a genuine conversation and, and where honesty norms are supposed to be in play, then that, yes, it is dishonest. Um, if the expectation is that we're c- kind of almost acting, like we're pretending like we're having a, a real conversation, but we're not, yeah. and that our responses are really not, we just know these responses are are fake yeah. and not genuine, it's not clear to me we are being dishonest in that kind of case. Yeah, yeah. it may just be, it's insincere, but it may mm. not necessarily be dishonest because both parties are aware that we're not, we're not really being sincere in this. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Just like um, if you're playing poker, you kind of suspend the honesty norms in that right. kind of context. You right. can't say, oh, you were dishonest. I, you made it seem like you had pocket aces, but you only had two, three. You yeah. know? No, I mean, that's part of the, of the game. Or if you go to a play and up, the person up there is saying, I'm Julius Caesar. They, oh, well, you know you're not. You can't, exactly. you can't accuse that person of being exactly. dishonest. That's just, the, the norms are suspended. I think that happens a lot with casual social interaction. Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily such a bad thing. What I'm talking about more is uh, the kind of heart felt personal interactions with people who you know and care about yeah. when there's time to have those interactions. Yeah. What happens then? Um, last question. E- each of our podcasts this year, we're focusing so much on formation. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we've been all over formation in this conversation, but just to tackle it directly, um, how, is, how is all the work that you're doing in character and honesty, uh, how is it forming you? And then also what kind of formation do you hope that it will have to the broader public? I, I often get to this question about has it made a difference in my own life and what the work on character and then specifically honesty, has it made me a better person? Uh, and there's a sense in which you would expect it would, uh, and I think the answer is yes, uh, but you can't assume that. Uh, there's a common joke I use, which is to say, um, I only teach ethics. Uh, doesn't mean that I'm an eth- ethical person myself. And research on the ethics of ethics professors is somewhat discouraging. Mm. Um, that ethics professors seem to be no more ethical than yeah. non-ethics professors. Uh, but let me say, in my own case, um, you know, I, I try to internalize this. I try to take this to heart. I try to, like we discussed earlier, um, you know, have it bleed over into my home life and how I interact with my kids and my wife and so forth. But um, it's clear to me that another thing studying character has taught me is that I've got a long way to go. Um, and uh, there, there are big gaps and blind spots and flaws um, that uh, hold me back from being the person I should become mm. and that I want to become. Um, so it's a gradual process, hopefully trending in the right direction, but I don't see – I don't have um, – hopes that I'm going to become a virtuous person in this life. Hmm. I hope to make some progress in that direction. And there's a whole question about how the Holy Spirit factors into that and and helps along with that process. But I don't have the illusion, I think of an illusion that I would become a virtuous person in this life. Um, And now tackling this, so two more points. One is um, 
the work itself. I hope that work like the Character Gap book, um, which has multiple chapters on how to become better, I hope that that will be useful to people and that some people will pick that up and say, um, okay, here's some concrete things that I can do in my life and that they are helpful and that um, I become better in this area of my life because of that. So uh, that would make me thrilled if that were to, to be the case. Um, the last point, though, let's bring it back to, to spiritual formation specifically. This has been a largely secular conversation, um, but from a spiritual formation perspective, it seems that you have, you can't, it can't just be the human being trying to fix themselves. Mm. Um, well, it can be. I mean, you can, without that perspective, many people do. Um, but I, from a, if we bring in a kind of broader Christian worldview, I don't think that's the right perspective to have. Right, right. Um, it's the Christian taking seriously how to become a better person and doing some things in a community, so not on their own, not in isolation, but in a community, the church, uh, which has all kinds of resources to further the Christian's spiritual development, hmm. resources ranging from um, role models to study of the Bible, um, to confession, to fasting, to all kinds of pre- spiritual practices, disciplines, yeah. disciplines <laughs> which are character building yeah. if carried out well. But... Thirdly, it can't just be all human-centered, whether individually or in a community. I think it has to be also another piece of the puzzle has to be the role of the uh, Holy Spirit internally in the sanctification process, Um, restoring the believer to the kind of person that they were meant to be all along. Mm. Um, How exactly that works is a matter of of theological discussion we could have another time. Is it that uh, the Holy Spirit directly works on the psychology of the individual, changing their psychology in certain ways? That's one view. Is it a matter of the Holy Spirit more just um, inspiring a person to change, but it's up to the person to actually make those changes? That's another view. Uh, We don't have to get into the mechanism, but it does seem to me that uh, Christians are uniquely positioned here because they have, in the process of formation, uh, a tremendous resource. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's not left to us on our own devices. If it were, I would be somewhat pessimistic. <laughs> but that there's a divine supernatural agent who's involved in the process too, not just in this life, but I would also argue in the next life, yeah. uh, completing the process in the next life. And that gives me great hope about uh, the eventual uh, possibilities of completing the journey of spiritual formation. Yeah. Dr. Miller, this is great. How, how can people follow your work further from here? Uh, I have a website, uh, christianbmiller.com. I'm on social media at various places, Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Instagram, and the like of that, LinkedIn, at Character Gap, one word, Character Gap. Uh, and then you can just look at the Wake Forest Philosophy Department. You can send me an email. I'm happy to be a resource for anyone who's, who uh, might be interested in these topics. Thank you so much for your time today. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the podcast. And now it's time for our segment called On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. Today, we're delighted to have with us Dr. Chuck Lawless. Dr. Lawless, what's on your bookshelf right now? I am uh, reading a book that might surprise you right now. It's uh, 
called The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter uh, Volhaben, who is a, a German uh, who worked in, works in forestry. Uh, the subtitle is What They Feel, How They Communicate Discoveries from a Secret World, which again may sound odd, but uh, the, the Lord has just uh, over the years taught me uh, to see his glory in, in creation, and that's become even more so the case as I get older. Uh, and I picked up this book just to learn about how, how trees, uh, how they grow, how they help each other, uh, even according to this book, how they communicate with each other. Uh, it's quite fascinating. And the more I read it, the more I, I see just the mystery of what God does in creation. And that's what, I've, that's what I've loved about this book. One more time, the name of the book? The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel, How They Communicate. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. It's a very small step, but it really goes a long way to helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.